Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Your lifestyle is what, when, and how much we eat, sleep, and exercise. And if you compromise on one aspect, you always have opportunity to make it up by doing a little bit more on the other. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor, I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Can when you eat be as important as what you eat? Well, my next guest definitely thinks so and has spent his entire academic career studying the effects of circadian rhythm on everything from heart disease, exercise capacity, cognitive health, and yes, diabetes. Sachin Panda, PhD, is a professor at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California. His lab studies how circadian rhythm in metabolism is an integral part of metabolic health and longevity. In preclinical animal models, he discovered that consuming all calories within a consistent 8 to 12 hours, also known as time-restricted feeding, can sustain daily rhythms. And one of the commonest topics I'm asked about is whether time-restricted eating or eating within rigid windows is advisable. And so I was fortunate to spend some time with Dr. Panda himself today, whose research I've been privy to for many years. And studies have shown that this practical tool can prevent or even reverse chronic diseases and increased lifespan. And today, you're going to learn a lot of things. What circadian rhythms are, the biggest drivers to rhythm, eating light and exercise, eating strategies for shift workers, and actually why technically, according to the definition of what a shift worker is, more of us are actually shift workers and not just firefighters and medics. And also how we separate the effect of time-restricted eating from the inevitable calorie deficit that can sometimes confound the results. And we also talk about the benefits of intermittent fasting to insulin release, your gut inflammation, and fat breakdown. You're going to find out so many 
elements of time-restricted eating in today's episode. I'm sure there are going to be lots of follow-up questions and we'll probably have to do another episode on time-restricted eating. But if you are interested in more of this, we've done an episode with Dr. Walter Longo that you can find in the podcast library as well. You can find Sachin's book, The Circadian Diabetes Code, in all good bookstores, and the links to which are all on the doctorskitchen.com. And whilst you're there, you can download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free, and there's a 14-day free trial from the App Store. And whilst you're on the doctorskitchen.com, do check out our newsletter, Eat, Listen, Read. Every week, I send you a recipe to eat, something to listen to, something to read that will inspire you to live a healthier, happier week. That is our weekly well-being newsletter, and lots of you are absolutely loving it. For now, on to the podcast. This is my conversation with Dr. Panda. So, Sachin, look, it's... It's a pleasure to to have you on. Love the book. Love the previous book. Um, I've been following your work for a while now. Um, I've heard you on a whole bunch of podcasts, but the the things that I haven't heard about are a bit more about you. So so where you grew up, like what you were doing when you were a teenager. Where where where, did, where were you born? I was born in a province called Odisha in India. Uh, it's on the east coast. Mm. Um, gets a lot of plenty of uh, rainfall and. Um, the primary economy when I was growing up was agriculture. Uh, so that's how I grew up. Uh-huh. And um, I think in my book, I mentioned I uh, mostly grew up next to my maternal grandfather who used to work for the Indian Railway and mm. uh, do night shift work sometimes. And uh, I was feeling like, wow, he's a superhero because he could stay awake throughout the night do the work and daytime he could still play with me and what i didn't realize was that was putting a heavy toll on his health and just after he retired he got diagnosed with alzheimer's and passed away Hmm. um, pretty early in the in his 70s early 70s whereas my paternal grandfather uh, lived a little further on a farm he did not have I still remember uh, there was no electricity or running water in the village. And he was a farmer. He used to grow almost everything in, from his from the land, except he used to buy only salt and sugar from outside. And he had no access to any modern healthcare, um, but lived in sync with his, I would say, circadian rhythm because no electricity for a long time. And he lived to the age of 93. <laughs> wow wow that's amazing yeah. so i think that was a great experience to see the contrast of course i, I didn't relate any of that to circadian rhythm at that time but now i can yeah of course yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting isn't it you you look back at the uh the arc of someone's life through the lens of our experiences today and looking at the science and you can sort of piece together the dots of okay, why were they able to last so long or live for, for an extended period of time beyond the life expectancy without the uh, the modern healthcare, essentially, without access to modern drugs or interventions? It's, it's yeah. pretty fascinating. And what about your, um, your, your own childhood? So when did you, um, when did you go to uh, school and what, when, when did you actually decide that you wanted to be a scientist? 
Yeah, so I was in India. Um, I finished my undergrad in genetics and plant breeding. And that time, if you finish a degree in agriculture with genetics and plant breeding, uh, then people expected you to become a plant breeder. <laughs> I realized that, well, who would be a plant breeder in India because um, you have to work on rice or wheat and both of them flower too early in the morning. So that means you have to get up, disrupt your sleep and go to <laughs> So actually I was running away from that life. Okay, but yeah. I went did a master's degree um, in molecular biology. What we call molecular biology here, it used to, call, used to be called biotechnology. I worked in mm. industry for a couple of years and that's when I realized that um, you know, to rise up in ladder, either you have to be in management or in uh, science um, in, in that particular uh, company I was working for. So then I thought I'll choose science because you can always go back from science to management, but from management to science is not an easy task. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how I decided to go do a PhD and ended up here in um, San Diego where I went to do my PhD in at Scripps Research Institute. It's a premier private research institute, um, very strong in chemistry, structural biology, genetics. And I did my PhD on circadian rhythms in plants. And then I, during my postdoctoral training, I moved to mouse and then subsequently nowadays human circadian rhythm research. So you've moved up the food chain from from plants yeah. to mice, and now yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I would say that's a food chain from mouse to human is not a food chain. And no, no judgment of here. So, <laughs> so let, let's talk about. I mean, you you're asked this question multiple times. I'm sure you're asked about it on every single podcast that you do. But I, I guess just to anchor the listener, I mean, we've talked about time-restricted feeding for, for uh, quite a while in a few episodes. We have Walter Longer on, who I'm sure you know very well, um, uh, talking about it. But but why don't we talk about circadian rhythms, exactly what they are to anchor the listener, and then we can talk about why you applied the the learnings from circadian rhythm to type 2 diabetes in particular and uh, the impact on, on glucose metabolism. Yeah, so circadian, the word circadian literally means nearly 24 hours, uh, 24 hours rhythms. So circadian rhythms are daily timetables that are present in every single cell, in every organ, and in even in our every part of our brain. And these timetables are the master planner for our entire genome because they tell each of our 20,000 or so genes to turn on and off at the right time in the right organ. And this time-based program for genes to be turned on and off actually help in many different aspects. One is they improve our immune system so that we can better fight diseases and reduce sustained inflammation. They improve nutrition metabolism so that we can break down the toxins, repair DNA damage and also absorb and balance our internal nutrient state. Um, they also 
turn on the repair and reset rejuvenation system. So that means we can repair our injuries because almost every day at a microscopic level, we go through a lot of injuries and damage to our body. So those are repaired. And then they also improve the neurotransmitter balance in our brain so that our mood and our intellectual performance is optimized. So mm -hmm. uh, the circadian rhythms, although we immediately connect it to sleep and wakefulness, it's much more than that. It's in every cell and it optimizes when we have the right circadian rhythms, then it optimizes our physiology, metabolism, behavior, and even our gut microbiome. And just talk us through, uh, this is a relatively new science, right? We, we weren't thinking about circadian rhythms as it applies to human health for, you know, it's only, it's been relatively recent. Could you describe in, in brief, like how the science evolved over the last few decades and what that uh, critical point was, uh, uh, I think it was in 2001, where there was an experiment that actually demonstrated why circadian rhythms uh, are found in individual cells around different parts of the body, like the pancreas, the stomach, the digestive system, et cetera, and how that came about. Yes, yeah, so we have been living with our circadian rhythms for 200,000 years, ever since humans have been living on the planet, but we just became aware of it in the last 40 or 50 years. So the rotation of our planet around its axis creates this light-dark cycle. So to adapt to that light-dark cycle is extremely important for life. Uh, for example, even plants that just fix sunlight and carbon dioxide into the basic food in our food chain, uh, they do have a circadian rhythm so that they can anticipate the first ray of light in the morning so they can prepare their photosynthetic machinery to optimize um, food production from the first ray. They also can optimize, anticipate, based on the circadian clock, they can anticipate when the sun is going to go down and they can shut down their kitchen, their photosynthetic machinery and the estimate is by having a circadian clock, almost all photosynthetic organisms, starting from pond scum to big banyan tree, um, they could fix around 10% more carbon on this planet um, because of the anticipatory effect of having a clock. For animals, mm. uh, we have to anticipate and adapt to day-night cycle uh, during the light phase, um, the small animals have to go and hide from the predators. And the predators also have to be awake at night to go and hunt. Uh, we have to adapt to temperature fluctuation. Um, so we all, all life forms, nearly all life forms on this planet have evolved to have circadian rhythm. The earliest, mm -hmm. but we always thought that these rhythms are driven by light and dark. But are they actually driven or are they independent of light and dark? That was the question. And initially that question was actually asked almost more than 200 years ago um, when a uh, French winemaker uh, took a plant to his cellar and then found that the leaves went up and down in every 24 hours. And he was amused that there are these rhythms that are independent of day and night. And subsequently, many other scientists discovered this 
light dark independent rhythms that are sustained under what we call constant conditions so the definition of circadian rhythm is actually an endogenous rhythm that can sustain in the absence of environmental cues and then people even in uh, 50s and 60s there are human volunteers they would go to caves in europe and completely disconnected from the outside world temperature fluctuation because the cave temperatures are pretty constant and uh, they recorded their own sleep wake cycle and they found that they were actually going regularly to go to sleep and waking up in every 24 hours 15 minutes or so so they had established that we humans also have circadian rhythms that are independent of light dark cycle and essentially up to let's say early 70s or discoveries of circadian rhythms existence of circadian rhythms in many organisms and then in mm-hmm question was if these are really endogenous rhythm are there genetic basis to that so in 1971 there was a famous study in drosophila where they mutagenized drosophila fruit flies and then showed that these mutant fruit flies have no circadian rhythm in activity or rest or some mutants actually uh, were waking up a little bit earlier which would call period mutant with a short period or they were waking up a little late every day they had a long period and at that time in 1970s still scientists were not ready to accept that there is something uh, like circadian rhythm that are encoded by the genes so it took almost 15 years to for the scientific community to begin to accept that circadian rhythm is in fact a thing <laughs> so um and then i got into circadian rhythm i was fascinated because i realized that the last century uh, most of the most of the biomedical research was based on what gene a does to gene b or what uh, cell type does what but there was no component of timing and we know that the mm-hmm. we are not the same creature between the middle of the day and middle of night and so i was interested in what we call biology of time how biological systems keep track of time and if you think about it most diseases are diseases of mistiming for example cancer is a disease of mistiming because the cells instead of dividing say in 18 hours or 24 hours they begin to divide at 12 hours or 10 hours so they the division cell division becomes accelerated in a very simplistic way mm-hmm. Diabetes is a disease of timing because after a meal, a blood sugar is bound to go up and come down. And when it doesn't come down as quickly as in a healthy human and takes longer time to come down, then we diagnosed it as one aspect of diabetes. So mm-hmm. I was interested in the biology of time. And then I figured out that these 24 hours rhythms are very universal. They go from Pond scum, single cell photosynthetic bacteria to all the way to humans. So the beauty is if you understand the principle in one organism, you may be able to apply that principle to humans, which is yeah. which is really exciting because cancer is a good example. The principles of cell divisions that people understood starting from bacteria can still be applied to cancer. So similarly, if we can understand the principles of 24 hours rhythm from simple organisms, we can apply that to human health. 
Yeah, yeah. I I've uh, I haven't come across that uh, way of thinking actually of uh, diseases being a product of mistiming. Uh, so that's a really interesting way of thinking about things, and and actually it makes a lot of sense when you put it in terms of I mean using diabetes, which is going to be the mainstay of our conversation today. Um, the velocity at which you see glucose entering the bloodstream as well as the amount of time that you have a, of an excursion of glucose outside the normal uh, parameters of what you'd want in your bloodstream. Um, these are all things that would drive someone to have a diagnosis of diabetes and all the you know, ramifications of, of having those issues too. Um, I, I, I guess this is going to be an obvious question for, for you to answer, uh, for, for anyone in the know about the propensity of or the just the universality of how many people are suffering with either a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes. But what is the state of affairs when it comes to diabetes currently in the US and the UK? And why do you feel that uh, time-restricted feeding or knowledge of someone's circadian rhythm is so important as it applies to this particular condition? Yes, yeah, so in the last 25 or 30 years, uh, I would say in the last 40 years, uh, what we have seen is our circadian rhythms, uh, if we simply define it as sleep-wake cycle, um, because everything else kind of revolves around that, has seen a lot of disruption. When we say circadian rhythm disruption, then it's a very generic term, and uh, we uh, let's define it more quantitatively. Mm. So we know that the modern world is possible because of shift workers, people who work in the night shift because they are the ones who take care of the society when the society is sleeping. <laughs> and doctors, nurses, pilots, um, uh, even service workers, truck drivers, all of them are shift workers. And we know that shift workers bear a disproportionately heavier um, burden of disease. Um, so it was always the question whether these shift workers, they may not have access to healthy nutrition or um, they may be consuming excess alcohol or tobacco products to keep away, keep, keep themselves awake. That's why it's happening. Um, so let's go back to the definition of shift work. So if you look at the International Labor Organization's definition of shift work, it's anyone who stays awake for two hours or more between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. So during those seven hours, if you stay awake for two hours, for one day a week. So that is 50 oh, wow. days in a year. Um, then he or she is living the lifestyle of a shift worker. So why is that? Because if someone is staying awake for two hours and working, this person is likely staying under light and that light will disrupt circadian rhythm. Um, so the next day, the clock is delayed by one to one and a half hour. And if the person wants to come back to regular life, uh, then it will take two more days to reset the clock back to its original state. So as a result, by just work, staying awake for two hours, two extra hours beyond your habitual sleep time, once a week, we disrupt our circadian rhythm for half of the week. The night is disrupted, and then at least for two nights following that. And then the question is, what happens because of this? One thing is, uh, for example, our 
going back to blood glucose regulation now pancreas has a clock so that means the pancreas anticipates that you would be eating breakfast at say 8 a.m and accordingly it prepares the uh, insulin secretion process to be optimized uh, so that in response to your breakfast there is a good bolus of insulin that's secreted if you eat your breakfast too early then the pancreas is not ready you may get a suboptimal insulin response and if you miss the time then again there can be a suboptimal insulin response but that's not very well demonstrated particularly for breakfast but at night time similarly um, your insulin producing cells are expecting when you go to sleep and two hours before our sleep melatonin levels begin to rise and melatonin levels again are indirect indication when the person is going to sleep melatonin inhibits glucose induced insulin secretion so as a result your insulin secretion system is slowly shutting down two to three hours before going to bed and if you delay your breakfast and eat very close to bedtime then you also miss the circadian optimized insulin secretion window as a result a late night meal leads to a prolonged um, hyperglycemia um, compared to the same bolus of glucose or calories earlier in the day and this has been demonstrated for over 30 years now uh, so this is an example of how um, mistiming uh, can lead to um, a very different glucose response so now coming back to another aspect we eat when we are awake and when we st when you are getting less sleep and particularly when you are delaying sleep then we have more opportunity to eat then there is another aspect of uh, our human nature that is a human civilization the cradle of human civilization actually lies in the evening activity what we do between 6 p.m and midnight because during the day we spend our time earning a living and after evening we are kind of free that's the time when you feel we're intellectually emotionally and physically free so we want to spend that time with our loved ones with our family and friends and one aspect of developing that bond is through food so all of our in the ancestral time the fireside chat after an evening meal is where arts poetry philosophy science politics all evolved and we continue to do that in fact the social media has actually given us more opportunity to extend that fireside chat to glowing pieces of rectangular objects and we chat through that <laughs> with that we also consume mm, more yeah, food yeah. so in yeah. that way we do two different things one is we are eating at the wrong time very close to bedtime which uh, was not happening before and second is we are also extending the number of meals or increasing the number of meals that we eat throughout the day the third thing that happens is when we are sleep deprived because we can go very late into the night that gives us the free time but in the morning we have to do our regular job that's when we lose our freedom our life becomes tethered to what time we have to report to work so when you have reduced sleep although you can reduce that morning fog by a cup of coffee 
it does not improve your executive decision-making process. So as a result, you, we make a lot of bad decisions throughout the day. And out of all the decisions that we make, irrespective of who is doing what kind of work, we all make a common decision that is about food. What to eat, how much to eat, what combination to eat, and when to stop eating. And if we make bad decisions on any one, two, or three aspects of this, then we'll end up eating bad food, excessive food, and wrong food at the wrong time. In a day, we yeah. take nearly 200 plus decisions about food and beverages. So you're more likely to make food-related decisions, bad decisions, if you're sleep deprived. So there are now three yeah. different ways that circadian disruption can directly or indirectly lead to compromising quality, quantity, and timing of your diet. And all these three will eventually lead to your health. So bad decisions about quality, quantity, and timing will eventually lead to dysmetabolism, obesity, diabetes, and metabolic disease. Yeah, yeah. And this is something that you came to realize, I guess, initially through uh, studies on mice where you would perform uh, research where you, you would you would time restrict these mice so they, they could eat ab I'll let you explain in a second because I, I don't want to bastardize it but they would they would eat ablibidum uh, throughout a, a a cycle that was above 12 hours or just any time of the day within 24 hours and then you looked at ones that were time restricted and you found an improvement in the biometrics talk us through those experiments and and, and how you led to that hypothesis and how that's been replicated uh, in in human trials yeah so most of the human, to understand human metabolic disease or to develop therapies, we do experiments in lab animals, particularly in mice and rats. And there is a famous experiment that is done in many labs around the world. We call it diet-induced obesity, how changing the quality of the diet can trigger obesity. Um, the idea is to mimic a Western diet that is somewhere between 40 to 45 percent of calories from fat, um, 15 to 20 percent calories from processed glucose sugar, um, simple sugar, and then a healthy level of protein actually. And then if you give this diet to mice at Livitum, that is the mice have access to this food 24 seven, then within nine to 12 weeks, these mice become obese. They have uh, excessive body fat, they even have fat deposit in their liver, and they show sign of glucose intolerance or early sign of diabetes. And this experiment has been replicated at least 11,000 times over the last 25, 30 years. So this is the staple experiment that all metabolism lab, almost all metabolism lab do. But mm -hmm. um, almost 15 years ago, um, another lab, um, Joe Bass's lab at Northwestern University, found that when mice are fed this high-fat diet ad libitum or diet-induced obese mouse models, they actually eat slightly more food during daytime. Mice are nocturnal. They are not supposed to eat too much food during daytime. That's their sleep time. Uh, they increase their eating by 15 to 20% during daytime. Um, he made that observation, but then we asked how much of this diet-induced obesity is due to really high-fat diet versus mistiming of diet. 
So we did a very simple experiment. We took identical set of mice um, born to the same parents in the same room, had the same genome, same microbiome. They ate the same number of calories. They ate the same diet. The only difference was the first group of mice ate ad libitum or whatever they could. Yeah, so the second group of mice that ate the same number of calories from the same food, they're completely healthy. They weighed 28% less. Their uh, body fat was 70% less. And the cholesterol levels are almost in normal range. And the blood triglyceride levels are almost in normal range. And surprisingly, they actually could stay on a endurance test twice longer and then the healthy mice that eat standard diet, healthy diet. So that was a big surprise. And they could uh, stay on a rotating drum for a very long time. So their motor coordination was much better. And subsequently, we also found that these mice have much better sleep and they have much better gut uh, or digestive system physiology. Uh, so the results were so surprising that we had to repeat it three, four times before we could publish. We thought this will be so dramatic that people will question us. And that's exactly what happened for the first few years. Um, I'd yeah. go to a conference and uh, scientific conference and people would come up to me and say, you know, your study doesn't explain the third law of thermodynamics. You must have done something wrong. You should go back and test <laughs> this and test that. And uh, it was really scary because, you know, we knew that there is, there is a benefit, but we didn't know how the benefit is coming. So we had to do a lot more work. Uh, but now this same mouse study has been replicated numerous times, at least mm. 50 or 100 times by independent labs. They found the same conclusion. Uh, I must also say that eight hours is not a magic number. The reason why we did the eight hour experiment in the first one was my grad student, Christopher, who led the study, um, his girlfriend uh, wanted him more than I did. So he see one. So he was allowed to be in the lab for nine hours. So that means the mouth would eat within eight hours. <laughs> and people think that that eight hours is a magic number. So if you say time restricted feeding or intermittent fasting, everybody says you should do eight hours eating, 16 hours fasting. And they should go and ask Chris. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So it's completely arbitrary. Well, so subsequently, his convenience. We, we did the empirical <laughs> experiment where we did 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, uh, Okay. Up to 15 okay. hours. So the bottom line is somewhere between eight to 10 hours is get very similar results in mice. And uh -huh. uh, 10 to 12 hours, the mice were protected from obesity and many other things, but they did not gain the endurance benefit that we see in eight to 10 hours. Uh, so those are some of the right. okay. differences. Um, but essentially eight, yeah. nine or 10 in mice are very similar. Sometimes we do nine hours, uh, which is very almost identical benefits. And then we don't go below eight because that's when mice reduce their calorie intake and it'll be difficult to mm -hmm. figure out what health benefits are due to reduction in calorie, which we know will lead to benefits yeah. and also time restriction. So- Yeah, that, I just wanna, I just wanna summarize that because you've said a lot of things that, that are fairly dramatic and I just wanna punctuate that for the listener because they're, they're pretty astonishing results there. So you fed these mice the exact same obesogenic diet that has been replicated in over 11,000 studies uh, to, to use your, your words there uh, uh, in mice. And you found that just changing 
the timing by which you fed them the same diet that was all calorie and macronutrient controlled, you were able to avoid uh, largely the obesogenic effects and even preserve some of their exercise effects, which I found particularly interesting because exercise, uh, as listeners to this podcast will know, is one of the main drivers towards a healthy long long lifespan as, as well as health span. So that that's amazing in itself. Um, and also you, one of the, the mainstays for, for those who don't know too much about, um, uh, science and, and, uh, maintaining an or of, of authority is you got those results replicated independently in different labs so that you reduce the, uh, any element of bias there. So that, that really does put a stake in the ground as to there's something going on here and now it's time to replicate. Now it's time to figure out what the mechanism is and see if this actually applies to humans as well, because to, to use a quote in your book, mice are nice, but humans, humans yeah. are better. Yeah. Yeah. So it was asked whether mice are little humans or humans are bigger mice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So w- within the, the spectrum of different time restricted feeding windows, you've tried, you, you trialed everything between eight and, and 12. Where would you say, is there a sweet spot? Is, is there a sweet spot or is it, is it, is it pretty much the same? Well, when it comes to humans, we are, we have to figure out what is uh, feasible and what is uh, healthy, and you've got to find that uh, sweet spot. So, for example, we know that reducing yeah. calories and avoiding all the uh, alcohol is good for you, but then the sweet spot is maybe one to two drinks in a week or something like that. So similarly, uh, we got to figure out what is the yeah. sweet spot. So in humans, um, the first thing is, do humans eat like mice? And initially people would say, no, human, we don't eat like mice. We eat three meals a day. And so your results, even if it was true in mice, have no relevance in humans. So uh, this is actually the criticism that we initially got. And we said, okay, let's go back and see when people eat and how many times they eat. So we made a very simple app called My Circadian Clock and the first iteration the only thing people had to do was to open the app one click take a picture of that food two click and then press set three click so that's all they didn't have to say what they ate how much person size or anything nothing we just wanted a objective time stamped evidence that they ate or drank something and it was up to us to determine whether it was water or whether it was black coffee would ignore those ones and then take anything that looked like they had at least five kilocalories or more uh-huh. as food. And we did that on 156 uh, adults who were not college students and they were not shift workers. And what we found was nearly 50% of them uh, had an eating window of 14 hours, 45 minutes, or roughly say 15 hours or longer. And what is eating window is the window of time in which 95% of all the eating events within two weeks are likely to happen. So for example, suppose that uh, one can say that, yes, I eat everything within 10 hours. But if I say I eat between 6 a.m. and 4 p.m. today, and then Tuesday I eat from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., Wednesday I eat from 10 a.m., um, to 8 p.m. and then I switch back, then 
our body is actually getting reset every day because the body is expecting food at mm. the same time, but it's actually not getting food at the same time. So just like your jet lag, your body is going through what do we call metabolic jet lag. So the best way is to figure mm. out what is the roughly, what is the interval in which I'm most likely to eat. So that's why we come, we come up with this definition. And in this example, although the person uh, I'm eating within a 10 hour window every day, since the window is moving, our, our circa my circadian system is getting confused. So my uh, actual eating window that the body is expecting food is somewhere between 6 a.m. and say 8 p.m. on any given day. Mm -hmm. So uh, with that definition, we, what we found is 50% of adults eat for 15 hours or longer. And only 10% of adults eat consistently within a window that's 12 hours or so. So that means nearly 90% of people have the potential have the headspace to pay attention to when they eat and can try to eat within say 10 hours window because somebody who is habitually eating over a long period of time, we cannot expect him or her to quickly go down to eight or nine hours. Yeah, I just want to punctuate that again as well actually. So 90% of people, because the, the circadian uh, app that you've got that I think is available yeah. on Apple and, and Google Play, it's like a big sort of uh, public science uh, research um, opportunity for, for, and you've you've had thousands yeah. of downloads. Yeah. It's, it's a really cool, simple app. And so that was designed really to figure out when people are eating and actually if they say they're eating in 10 hour window is actually 12 hours or 13 hours yeah. or whatever. And what you found from that was actually people, most people, 90% of people are eating out, out of outside of a 12 hour yeah. window. Yeah. Is that 12 hours. Right? It means so the, in any given week or two, your body is expecting food within that more than 12 hours window. Right. And what you said also about the switching, uh, just if you are able to maintain a 10 hour, uh, window of eating, but that changes by a couple of hours every single day, 6 a.m., 8 a.m., etc. The circadian signatures that are embedded on your pancreas, your your digestive tract, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that's enough to still cause uh, disruption. So you're not truly eating in a 10-hour window. It's more yeah, like a 12 yeah. or 14-hour window. But it's almost like okay. So yeah, it's almost like someone mm. um, so flying from London to Istanbul once a week um, or twice a week <laughs> you have like two yeah, times on yeah. roughly two times on differences and that's what your body is experiencing so right so the opportunity to experience some of the benefits of intermittent fasting isn't it's really not being realized by the majority of people even if people are trying to maintain some fasting uh, or some time-restricted eating window themselves. And we'll, we'll get into yeah, yeah. some of the benefits of what what those might be as well. But that, that's the, essentially the state of play. Yeah, so I guess the idea is to maintain a consistent window that doesn't change. Mm. So I mean, life is uh, uh, unpredictable, but still, if we can try to um, maintain a 10 hours window with say half an hour each uh, on each side, some buffer, uh, then that's pretty good enough. Yeah. Um, and if you can reduce it to eight yeah. hours and still maintain an hour window on each side, that's still awesome. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you, you mentioned some of the, the reasons as to why it can lead to disruption to glucose homeostasis mm -hmm. uh, with disruption to sleep and everything. But I just wanted to, to uh, expand on the impact on the gut because something that uh, I think is unknown to a lot of people is that your gut and your digestive system takes anywhere around five to six hours to process food through it. So if you are not eating within that window, you're never really giving your gut a rest. Is that, am I right in saying yeah. that? Yeah, uh, you put it rightly. Uh, so after your last bite of the night, um, the gut takes, your stomach takes around five hours to digest that food and then pass it on to the intestine, the next phase. Um, so that means if, if I finish my last meal at 6 p.m., then even if I'm not eating anything at all after that, my gut is still, my stomach could still be digesting that food till 11 p.m. Right. Mm. And then if you think about it, our gut is going through a lot of assault during the day because it's, there is a huge amount of acid production that, that's digesting everything that you eat, starting from vegetables to the sashimi, that's uncooked meat. Um, so your gut is also uncooked meat, <laughs> digesting <laughs> that uncooked meat that you ate. So uh, during this process, the gut lining also gets damaged. In a typical uh -huh. day, um, nearly 7 to 10% of the cells lining the gut uh, are damaged They need to be repaired or replaced. And that repair and replacement um, requires that your gut is relatively empty. Um, and it's not your gut lining are not doing that job of absorbing nutrition so that they can repair themselves. And second is this gut lining repair requires growth hormone that's produced from the brain and the growth hormone production happens only at nighttime or in your slow wave sleep mostly. Um, so you got to align these two slow wave sleep, growth hormone production and your stomach has to be relatively empty for the stomach lining to repair itself. So that's why yeah. maintaining a long nightly fast and the fast should ideally start pretty early, 6 or 7 p.m. in the evening should be your last meal. So that gives the system enough time to empty the stomach and you should be in your bed to have the growth hormone released so that all of this can align and repair your gut lining. If the gut lining is not repaired, as you can imagine, over several days, the damage can accumulate. As a result, you can get what you call leaky gut. Uh, it's not essentially your gut is leaking out all the food into your bloodstream, but uh, you know, small pieces of bacteria and allergy-causing chemicals and other stuff can get into the system and can cause mild inflammation. If it continues, that sustained inflammation can also lead to other diseases. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So essentially giving your gut a rest so it can prevent that hyperpermeability that is a, a normal reaction to eating on a daily basis and that repair mechanism yeah. as well is super important. And I guess putting it practically, you know, if someone's eating in a 14-hour window, let's say they have their last meal at 10, 10 p.m., it will take six hours for the, the gut to digest. And then the gut suddenly has a rest at 4 a.m. 
and you wake up nice and early and you have a coffee with with milk and cream or a, a donut or, or whatever you're eating granola um, then your gut is back into action again and so it's never really getting that chance to a repair itself uh and and b stop digesting yeah. food uh, essentially so yeah yeah so that's what is uh happening with uh, late night eating at least one aspect of it um as you mentioned yeah. uh, also late night eating um, very close to your bedtime your insulin system is not working properly so your hyperglycemia may continue for a long period of time yeah yeah within that if we were to to dive into someone who let's say is maintaining an eating window of around 10 hours throughout the day is it also beneficial to have defined periods of time when you do stick to a breakfast lunch and dinner and you don't graze or snack in between those assigned meal times is there are, are there any benefits to that well in practice what we see is um when someone goes through 14 to 16 hours of fast overnight then they typically increase their first meal uh, you know breaking of the fast um so that meal uh, goes up in size and breakfast is really an important meal in many different ways one is breakfast is a meal on which many of us have good control because if we if you are eating breakfast at home then you are in control of what you are putting in your mouth uh, once you get out of the home um, then you are at the mercy of which restaurant or <laughs> which meeting you are attending <laughs> that will feed you once you have a big yeah. breakfast then your craving for snacks actually goes down that's what we see in many of our clinical studies mm -hmm. uh, so typically these people they reduce snacking between meals so they go from breakfast to maybe a moderate small size lunch and then they also have uh, much better energy in the afternoon so they can avoid snacking um, so typically what we see is they kind of adopt two or two and a half meal, breakfast and dinner, mm -hmm. or breakfast and dinner with a small lunch. Um, the snacking typically goes down. We haven't done any systematic study between uh, people who are snacking six small meals within that 10 hours versus three meals. But there are other people who have done those studies. Uh, one study that came out of Israel among type 1 and type 2 diabetics showing that actually three meals within 10 hours, roughly 10 hours, was much better in glycemic control than six meals spread over, say, 12 to 13 hours. Uh, so, of course, there are two things going on. Six meals are spread over 13, 14 hours versus three meals within 10 hours, roughly. But the bottom line is um, that study kind of says that three meals within 10 hours, even for type 1 and type 2 diabetics, was much better because these patients could reduce their diabetes medication or even insulin mm. usage. And I thought that was really fascinating because almost every mm. diabetes doctor will tell that try to eat small meals from the time you wake up till the time you go to bed. And this one took a very different approach. Stick to three meals, healthy meals within 10 hours window and still have 14 hours fasting. And these patients were reducing their insulin uses and diabetes medication. Of course, the yeah. study has to be replicated, but what we see is in even in our studies, people with diabetes or early stage diabetes 
early stage type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes, they benefit from 10 hours time restricted eating. Yeah, yeah. If if those are found to be true and replicable, um, that will really revolutionize how the advice that we give as doctors to patients um, because the aim of the game, just for the listeners, is to try and reduce the amount of medications that we give uh, patients, particularly insulin, because too much insulin can have anabolic effects and, and, and other undesirable side effects as well. So if you can reduce the amount of insulin being given via a pump and the different types of insulin, then that's actually a win for everyone. So w- we've talked about the benefits of this particular way of eating through the lens of the microbiota, uh, sorry, the, uh, the gut, the digestive system, um, probably with spillover effects on the microbiota as well. Uh, the impact on on insulin release. What are some of the other mechanisms by which intermittent fasting can can potentially benefit people through you know fat deposition or muscle breakdown? What what are the other things that that interest you the most? Well, if you look at the number one and two causes of death or disability, it's uh, cardiovascular disease and cancer. Um, and that's why we're very interested in how to reduce the risk for cardiovascular cardiometabolic disease and also reduce the risk of cancer, um, accelerate the prognosis of cancer, and also rehab. So rehab prognosis and rehab for cardiometabolic disease and cancer, those two areas um, will have the biggest impact on human health. So when it comes to cardiometabolic disease, the I guess the first few stages where things can be reversed obesity and pre-diabetes. And for obesity and pre-diabetes, time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting can directly and indirectly benefit in many ways. One is in humans, unlike in mice, in humans, when humans reduce their eating window to say eight to nine or 10 hours, mostly eight hours uh, or less, then they inadvertently reduce their caloric intake by as much as 20%. Mm -hmm. And this is very dramatic because reducing calories by 20% by counting calories is very difficult. Even long-term studies funded by the National Institute of Health in the US, um, which targeted to reduce calories by 25% in healthy humans over two years, they found that they could reduce only by 12% by counting calories. So now the question is, um, by count, instead of counting calories, if you count time, and all of us can count time, we don't have to read levels. Uh, if we can inadvertently reduce calories by even 15 to 20%, that's a pretty good calorie reduction for diabetes, for obesity management. Um, then second is for pre-diabetes, which affects now one in three adults in the US and roughly one in three adults in UK, I would suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, then studies, human studies have shown even without weight loss, if people eat within a short time window, eight hours or nine hours, something like that, then they can improve their beta cell function and reverse pre-diabetes because you can, I mean, people can reverse their pre-diabetes, but once you are settled with type 2 diabetes, the truth is it's very hard to reverse and be medication-free for your life. Um, So 
the reversal of pre-diabetes is possible by timely shift feeding. Obesity management is possible by timely shift feeding. Then when it comes to type 2 early onset type 2 diabetes, then there are now ongoing studies. And then the study that I mentioned from Israel showing that, uh, yes, they will benefit um, type 2 diabetes patients uh, with or without even insulin. Then when it comes to cardiometabolic disease, the other two things are uh, blood pressure and uh, triglyceride. And one surprising thing that we find in most time-restricted feeding studies so far in humans is time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting um, disproportionately benefits blood pressure reduction, particularly diastolic blood pressure, which is very difficult to manage with medication. Systolic blood pressure, of course, reduces, but then the diastolic is the one that also sees a lot of benefits from time distributing. Then the next is triglyceride and lipids. Um, we think that it might take longer time with time restricting and time restricting alone may not be sufficient. We may have to combine that with some improvement in diet quality to achieve that uh, lipid profile, but some of the results uh, that we are seeing, uh, early results from NMR lipoprotein profile <clears throat> is we're seeing improvement in BLDL, cholesterol, and um, maybe some APOB. Of course, the jury is still out because small studies, we have to see multiple studies. Um, so in this way, I'm very hopeful that the overall cardiometabolic disease risk can be reduced to some extent. Uh, let's be frank, means when a person goes from healthy to diabetes, then the health, the total healthcare cost for that person in the US goes up by $9,000 per year. And this is only with one complication. And if the person has metabolic syndrome, which is three out of five different complications, then the healthcare cost is even more. And in the next 10 years, most of the nearly 60% of the pre-diabetic will transition to type 2 diabetes. So now if we do the math, even if intermittent fasting, time restricting can prevent 10% of the pre-diabetic to transition to pre-diabetes, that itself is several billion dollars in healthcare spending, savings, and also several years of healthy life for those individuals. Now, um, we can extrapolate to cardiometabolic disease and do the math. The bottom line is, yes, we can move the needle. I'm not promising that it will benefit everybody. It's almost like going to a restaurant menu. If you, even if there is there are 10 items, all of them are pretty good. We have certain preferences for certain items. So some people will find it easy yeah. to adopt. Some people may not find it easy. But the bottom line is, it is on the menu to reduce your risk yep. for cardiometabolic disease. For cancer, there are many studies now showing there are benefits. Of course, now cancer is also linked to obesity and metabolic disease because um, hyperglycemia alone or hyperglycemia with obesity also increases risk for many cancers. And also cancer survivors who have hyperglycemia and metabolic uh, uh, diseases they also had a high risk for relapse. And if we can manage these, then we can reduce cancer risk and also reduce uh, relapse risk. So in that way, I think 
the circadian rhythm has given a new insight and also new opportunities for prevention management of these diseases that um, will benefit millions of people worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I totally agree with that. I, I guess you mentioned um, one of the side effects of applying time-restricted eating uh, uh, windows um, in practicality to, to humans, they, they tend to eat less. Are there studies that are able to separate out the effects of the calorie restriction from true uh, uh, time-restricted feeding without the inadvertent effect of, of calorie restriction? Like, have there been any studies looking at people within a metabolic chamber where you can actually see everything in terms of their calorie consumption and just change the windows in the same way we do with, with mouse studies? Yes, there is a few studies. And then the most exemplary study is from Courtney Peterson, published in Cell Metabolism, where he uh, fed um, people with pre-diabetes a diet that maintained their body weight. The aim was to maintain the same body weight, but fed them within 12 hours or six hours. And what mm. she found was when uh, these people ate within six hours, they improved their um, glucose sensitivity and improved their blood pressure regulation. Uh, so that's a, of course, that's a short-term study because you cannot give this control study for over months. But even with this short-term study, after controlling for body weight, and calorie can take to maintain that body weight. She found these benefits. So that's the most promising in humans. Yeah. Coming back to other yeah. studies where caloric restriction and time restriction were combined. There's one study that just came out from China, which made big headline <laughs> and unfortunate headline. Um, but actually what was interesting in that study was uh, at baseline, these patients already had a 10 hour eating window and their target was to reduce it to eight hours eating window. And right. <laughs> when you go from 10 to eight hours, we know that even in animals and in humans, there's not much difference from, there is some difference, yeah. there may be some difference, but you need large number of people to see that difference. Whereas this study, I think, was not powered enough to see a difference in the benefits of time restricting when someone changes from 10 hours to eight hours. On top of that, all patients had to reduce their calories by 25%. And they did. They reduced their calories by 25%. And um, they also, half of them reduced their eating window from 10 hours to 8 hours. The conclusion was those who did caloric restriction and time restriction were as healthy as those who did caloric restriction alone. So then New York Times um, declared <laughs> that time restriction doesn't add any benefit. Uh, this is the challenge with, uh, with big media uh, because even for many scientists, it becomes very difficult to go through the nuances of these scientific papers, clinical trials, and how the power calculation was done and what are the baseline characteristics of these patients and uh, to dissect that to come up with a clear opinion. So I don't blame uh, the reporters, but it's uh, unfortunate um, things that happen. And it, we have seen this in many studies. There will be studies coming out saying low-dose aspirin has no benefit. <laughs> but actually, mm. 
We know, yeah. cardiologists know that those who already have one MI event, low-dose aspirin, is extremely beneficial. So it all depends mm -hmm. on context. What's your baseline and where you are going? Um, yeah. So I think the, um, there is very clear data from hundreds of studies now that time eating can benefit, whether the benefit is coming through caloric restriction or through directly, that's a, that will depend on the condition. Um, so for example, no one has looked at acid reflux and time eating, which can, which we know anecdotally from all of our patients that they do see benefits and hopefully those studies will come up. And how, whether time eating can be combined with chemotherapy to reduce the adverse side effect of chemo so that people can tolerate and complete that chemo um, during cancer treatment. So those things also have to be looked into. So there are many areas where this can be tested. Uh, the simple weight loss um, may not be enough. Uh, yeah. At the same time, last week, there was another study that came out in mice showing um, different groups of mice that went through the same caloric restriction that the exact same reduction in calories by 30%. Um, and then they were compared against the ad libitum fed group. So the experiment is very simple. You reduce calorie and then spread the calorie in eight equal meals spread throughout day and night so that you can see the clear benefit of caloric restriction. Because in most caloric restriction studies in mice, the reduced calorie is given in one bolus at any given, usually in the late afternoon, and mice eat that calories within two hours. So they're going through two hours of time ratio eating. So this experiment asked, okay, so if we spread the calories, then what happens? If we give the calories within two hours, what happens? If we give the calories within 12 hours by six equal size meals, what happens? What they found is all of the CR mice ate the same number of calories, but the difference was the CR mice that spread the calories over 24 hours, they live 10% longer than the ad libitum fed mice, mm -hmm. good news. But the CR mice that reduced the time window to 12 hours, whether it's day or night, they live 10 more extra percent. So they live 20% longer. And then the CR mice that ate the same number of calories, but ate in their habitual time of nighttime, when mice are supposed to eat, they live 35% longer. So oh, this wow. is a clear example where CR alone extends lifespan by 10%. But if you combine CR mm. and TR and feed mice at the right time when they're supposed to eat, then you can extend lifespan as much as 35%. That's the median lifespan extension. Yeah. So I think... Yeah. And what is interesting is in all these CR groups, the body weight was identical. So the body weight was not predicting how long the mice could live. But at the same time, you know, this just this is a first study, so there's not enough molecular data to digest and say, hey, we can look at this blood biomarker and that would predict whether this reduced weight will lead to long lifespan or not.
that, that sounds fascinating. I think we'll have to wait until we can actually replicate that, if at all, in uh, in practically in, in human subjects. But it seems that, like you said earlier, we have a selection of different tools. We have calorie restriction. We've got time restricted feeding. We have exercise. We have all these different options, and I think it's about trying to fit that in conveniently into one's lifestyle, such that they can reap the benefits of those which we know of. Um, and I think the the details on exactly okay how much is it related to the time restricted feeding window versus calorie deficit is sort of up for discussion. And I think there's always going to be a bit of a healthy debate yeah. on that. Putting it practically, because I get asked about this a lot, um, as a former shift worker, I've now taken the decision not to do any more night shifts for the rest of my life if I can avoid it. Uh, but certainly someone who travels quite a bit, uh, I, I guess you're asked this quite a bit as well. As a night shift worker, considering all we know about the detrimental effects on one's physiology from staying up at late, uh, late at night and then switching uh, circadian time, uh, the, the circadian rhythms are uh, disrupting it. How can we avoid or at least mitigate against those issues with the different tools that we have when we eat, light uh, exposure and, and exercise, yeah. I guess? So I guess we can, um, let's just begin with uh, regular folks, not night shift position. <laughs> <laughs> the regular folks. Yeah. Well, from the definition that I was quite surprised. Yeah, almost at, everybody is a ship worker. There's probably more. There's everybody exactly, is a ship yeah, worker. Every, like, uh, yeah, I'm yeah. talking about a, a, a non-card carrying. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, so I guess there are six different, uh, six basic steps. I would say. Uh, number one is your day actually starts the night before when you go to bed. So try to go to bed at a consistent time and be in bed for eight hours so that you can get at least seven hours of sleep. That means on your calendar, daily calendar, set aside eight hours in bed. And because sleep has numerous benefits, including you know, synaptic plasticity, learning, memory, brain rejuvenation, detoxification, a lot of benefits. Then after waking up, wait for at least an hour or two before the first bite of the day, because this is the hour when your digestive, although you just woke up, your digestive system, your endocrine system, your hormonal systems have not adapted to waking up and being in the day states because the night hormones, for example, melatonin is still declining, not come to baseline mm -hmm. and the day hormones for example cortisols has begun to spike and the hormonal states and the digestive system is not ready for digestion so avoiding food for one or two hours is the step two and then the third one is to have your breakfast or the meal after overnight fast at a consistent time and then starting from breakfast, eat all your calories within eight, nine, 10, or maximum 12 hours, not longer than 12 hours. Because this time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting has been shown to have many benefits. It aligns your digestive system and nutrition uses with circadian rhythm in neuroendocrine rhythms. It also improves um, 
fat oxidation during the fasting time followed by um, all the anabolic processes. So that's number mm -hmm. three. Number four is uh, try to be outdoor for at least 30 minutes during the day under daylight. You don't have to be standing under sunlight because even in London in a cloudy day, you get five to 10,000 lux of light. And what you need is at least 1,000 lux of light for 30 minutes to an hour because light, particularly daylight, entrains our brain circadian clock, reduces depression, and lifts our mood. So it's the natural anti-depression that's plentiful, free, outdoor. You just have to step outside. Um, then the next one is number five is uh, exercise, um, because exercise is truly medicine. We still don't understand how it does, but it has huge pleiotropic impact benefits in many organ systems. And particularly from circadian rhythm point of view, what we have seen is late afternoon, early evening exercise is much better than exercise in the morning or very late night, because that's the time when your muscles mm. are prepared to do exercise. Your uh, flexibility and um, is much better so that you have less risk for injury. In fact, more world records are broken in the late afternoon, early evening than any time of the day. Um, yeah. So you can break your own personal record by doing exercise <laughs> in the afternoon. And then the last one, number six, is to wind down um, because your evening decides uh, rest of the day. So two to three hours before bedtime, avoid any food and also avoid any bright light because bright light can suppress melatonin um, the sleep hormone melatonin, it can delay or disrupt your sleep. So being in a relatively dim environment, which is maybe less than 40 lux of light, which is typical light level in a old English home, <laughs> whereas the light level in a typical grocery store is 1000 lux, that's pretty high. Um, so that will help. Yeah. So these are the six simple ideas. And hopefully out of all of these six, in, if someone adopts time-restricted eating, then automatically you are adopting also avoiding food for two to three hours before bedtime. And you are also adopting one hour yeah. fasting in the morning. And time-restricted eating alone is also seen to improve sleep. So that's why this is yeah. one thing that you can do to improve four different aspects of this circadian rhythms. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, if you can knock off a couple of those things by doing one thing or having one guideline as to when you eat, uh, it, it definitely makes a lot of sense. So consistency, not eating too early in the morning, straight after waking, 10 hours of time-restricted uh, feeding and uh, making sure uh, you are exercising, winding down and exposing yourself to adequate light uh, during the day. Yeah. Now, the pushback I'm going to get is... <laughs> This is, this is great if you have uh, you, nothing, no obstacles in your day to day. So I, I, like, you know, I always say in talks that I, I, I give, I'm like, look, th th these are the characteristics of what we want to try and aim for, right? This is perfection over here. If you can achieve all of them, fantastic. The, the solutions are simple. The implementation 
that's the hard yeah. stuff. That's, you know, keeping the consistency for everything. I struggle with it. I mean, this week, my waking up time were, were all over the place. I, I track my sleep every day. I can see the, the differences in terms of when I wake up and the effect that has on my cognitive abilities the next day. So I guess, given your experience, what, what do you have any advice for people who, who have such disruption to their day-to-day? Yeah, I guess um, we accept that there will be disruption from day to day. So that's why starting from mouse experiment to humans, we are actually, we also see how much of disruption is tolerable. Um, so for example, in mouse experiments, we would give mice five days of time just eating and then the weekends were off so they could eat. We used to call them the weekend parties for the mice and then they would eat more than <laughs> even the ad libitum fed mice. They, gorge food, uh, but still they were yeah. benefiting, they were getting almost 80% benefits. In human studies, okay. particularly one we are doing with shift workers, night, uh, 24 hour shift workers, the firefighters, uh, we are also finding oh, wow. similar results. If they could do uh, five days of time retreating 10 hours, during their preferred window, we don't have any restriction, they can choose any 10 hours window, then they're still seeing many cardiometabolic benefits. Um, so those are some of the things to keep in mind that if you miss it, it doesn't mean that you fell off the wagon and you cannot get back on. Uh, it's tolerable. Mm-hmm. And again, at the end of the day, your lifestyle is what, when, and how much we eat, sleep, and exercise. And if you compromise on one aspect, you always have opportunity to make it up by doing a little bit more on the other. So for example, if you sleep less, then maybe that's a day to go go for a brisk walk outside. Although you may be so sleep deprived that you may not go for your resistance training or running, but go for a good walk under daylight, then next day, automatically you'll compensate yeah. by sleeping, having a good night's sleep. Um, yeah. So we have to keep that in mind that lifestyle is beyond time eating. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I sometimes I think, you know, we talk about this stuff on the podcast and it sounds quite puritanical. Yeah. And I think people need to realize like there is a push pull of life. And part of that is the enjoyment, you know, the late night eating at the weekend or catching up with friends or like I'm getting married this year. So I'm going to be on my, uh, we call it stag over here. You guys call it bachelor party. I'm actually going to be in America. And uh, I, I, I know that's going to be disruptive to my sleep <laughs> and a whole bunch of other things as well about what I'm going to be eating and all, all, you know, the accessibility of greens that I'm habituated to eating every single day. So, you know, all, all these different things, I think you just have to take with a pinch yeah. of salt, so to speak, and just uh, enjoy the ride. But, you know, have a, a sense of like what uh, you're able to achieve uh consistently or as consistent as you can be with that and within the shift work sorry to double down the shift working element though within the shift working practice uh, the the shift workers is there evidence for a practice of uh having a meal at the start of their shift and the meal at the end of the shift and not eating during the actual shift if possible or is it just whatever you can achieve in terms of a 10-hour window well, it's a very difficult question because shift work is very mm. fuzzy, right? So there are, yeah. um, although we did the study among firefighters in the U.S., the career firefighters um, in the U.S. who do have a regular job, uh, that's only 250,000 
firefighters in the US out of a million firefighters. The other 700 actually are temporary, so they don't have a regular schedule. Among those career firefighters, again, 70% um, of them do 24 hour shift. And mm. the rest do 12 hour shift or even 48 hour shift or 72 hour shift. The shift, even among 24 hour shift, the shift can start at 8 a.m. in some fire districts, can I start at noon and can also start in the evening. So it becomes difficult which shift we have to look at. And as you have seen in medicine yeah, yeah. in the US, I have seen in the same medical school, different departments will have very different schedule for their residents and fellows. Okay. Um, so unless we standardize shift work, it becomes difficult. But the bottom line is what we're finding all shift workers should have access to darkness because when you come home, irrespective of which shift you worked, you have disrupted sleep and you need a completely dark room with noise cancellation or background uh, noise uh, to help you sleep because your sleep is very thin. You're more likely to wake up too many times during the day and you have to have a supportive sleep environment. Coming back to uh, food, again, it depends on what kind of shift you are on or what you are working on. So for example, we don't want people to be so weak. In firefighter study, for example, we didn't want them to be feeling low energy when they're getting that 10th call at nighttime. So we said, okay, so it's up to you. You can go and eat. But, but surprisingly, what we found was they said that nighttime fasting boosted their energy level so that they could do that 10th call without having to mm. eat a snack before that 10th call in the morning. So of course it took a while for them to adjust to that, but they could do it. And the other thing is, um, you know, people always ask about coffee. Is coffee is going to break your fast and what is the rule? <laughs> <laughs> and for shift yeah. worker, particularly events, if you're yeah, sleepy, if yeah. you're a surgeon, if you're going to put somebody under your knife, you better be awake. Yeah. So when it comes to yeah. so the, the, the rule about coffee or food <laughs> is if it involves public safety or somebody else's life, you're okay. <laughs> Have your coffee whenever <laughs> you want. Second is uh, if your job depends on, and also, if you're finishing the shift and driving back home, it's better to be caffeinated and awake. And Absolutely. second is if your yeah. job depends yeah. on it. And then the third one is if this is the only love in your life, okay, you can have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I love my coffee. I have a black yeah. coffee in the morning, but I actually wait for a good like hour and a half before I yeah. enjoy it. Um, just because I don't want to have the same sort of cortisol spike yeah. and stuff. As soon as I wake up, I just want to ride it out and just have water instead. So, yeah, I'd love to know about what your regime is in the morning, actually. Like you must get asked a lot about your supplement regime or like what you tend to break your fast with or, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, to be frank, just like you said, you, you had a very tough, um, you know, when you are training for physician or your early days as a physician. Similarly, in college and PhD and postdoc, um, I had no hours and as at least I guess 10 kilos uh, more than what I am right now. And then 
I think right after the mouse study, it was really eye-opening that if mice could improve their health so much, and if we really wanted to translate to humans, then why should not be, we should be the big mice in the lab. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we started doing, so, um, you know, I try to eat within 10 hours, and it's mostly two meals, a big breakfast, and then um, dinner, usually. Yeah. And then in the daytime, if there is any opportunity for a small salad or um, fruit and sometimes that's not there and it makes a huge difference because uh, for a lot of time i used to have sleep problem or acid reflux problem to a point that almost two to three times a week i would take acid reflux medication uh, and that's completely gone for almost nine ten years now Our sleep is wow. much better my joint inflammation has gone down there's a point i could not um, I could feel pain in at least one part of my body in every week. And now and that inflammation has gone down. You know, another thing mm-hmm. is when you do time restricting, it also improves your nutrition because as I said, you know, breakfast is the best meal. You have good control. And then if you're not eating and drinking late into the night, and also reduce your alcohol intake, dessert intake, simple sugar intake. Um, so that also improves your nutrition quality. So uh, that's kind of my routine. And then when I travel, um, avoid food during flight. And yeah. <laughs> even for a long yeah. transatlantic flight, if we avoid food, then you reset to the new time zone much faster. And then there is very little jet lag. Um, so these are some of my usual routine. And Again, supplements and other stuff, those are very personal stuff because, you know, some people need more calcium, some people need some Mm. vitamin D, almost everybody needs vitamin D, (laughs) multivitamins, and then depending on what um, um, deficiency you may genetically have or historically have, then that should come in. But again, you know, supplements Mm. are also another weird side of medicine where I think different people need different set of supplements. So that's why um, clinical trials or long-term cohort studies on supplements usually don't give you good signal to noise ratio. Um, Mm. And those things have to be again personalized. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty um, bullish on the idea of food first, but I definitely appreciate that people need supplementation in today's day and age. Uh, certainly vitamin D3, um, uh, omega-3 appears to have a, a number of benefits. I've seen that anecdotally, uh, clinically, as, as well as in, in studies as well. Um, but I, I always wonder about people's personal sort of supplementation habits uh, and, 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 and how they translate the science themselves. And you're right, it is very, very personal. personal. Another thing is, you know, um, another hidden um, pandemic that's going on is um, the sterile food that we eat. Um, I mean, most, almost every food that comes pre-packaged doesn't have even a single microbe, I would say, literally, mm. on them. Yeah. And if you contrast that to our ancestors or even a few years ago when even the fruits and vegetables are heavily irradiated to make sure that there is no microbe growing on them. So our intake of microbes 
that come naturally with food has substantially decreased and covid has even made it worse because now we are so yeah scared about sanitation that our touch our microbial ingestion our diversity might actually decrease and even mm. the food that we processed food even if you are eating a ketogenic bar or even a regular um you know croissant or anything that you eat that you buy if you buy and leave it on your countertop for a week or two nothing happens so yeah. my <laughs> my idea is if it is so bad for the bug how good it can be <laughs> for your gut <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> that's another thing that we have to keep in mind that once in a while just go and try to mindfully <laughs> eat some food that has not been irradiated or yeah probably washed yeah, with lysol yeah. or something else yeah yeah exactly have you taken steps to eat more microbial the uh more diversity in terms of your food like do, do you have like uh, uh kefirs or micro rich we just make our we just, or yeah we just make our own uh, yogurt at home and then i have oh nice we have okay. a small garden yeah, yeah. you grow right. um any vegetable that you eat from your garden has enough micro yeah yeah, <laughs> so, yeah so any tomato or even brilliant. herbs or everybody even if you are in an apartment you can always grow some herbs and tomatoes in a pot absolutely yeah that's what we try and do here actually the first thing i'm going to do uh when i get a garden eventually in the next year is uh start growing my own because i think it's super important and just to get connected again with the uh the soil and, and where food comes from i think it's super yeah. important Sachin, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much for spending time with us and, and talking about your book. The book is is fantastic. And I, I wonder what the next title might be. Where which uh, which part of the body are you going to apply the circadian code to? <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> well, we awesome. are very excited about diabetes because you know, even in uh, in the context of COVID, um, one of the things that that is becoming clear is uh, post covid syndrome um mm. involves uh, for many people dysregulation of glucose metabolism and in the us with a population of 300 say 40 million people if the projection is nearly 150 to 200 million people will be eventually infected with the virus and one in four will have post covid syndrome that's millions of people with mm. post covid syndrome who may have dysregulated metabolism in the form of um hyperglycemia so i guess still this is a pretty good approach to um, manage hyperglycemia it will be interesting to see test whether time restricting can manage hyperglycemia in post covid syndrome that's yeah absolutely yeah that would be that would be fascinating to see actually and especially with the rise of people using um continuous glucose yeah. monitors um and the the number of private companies that are making it more available to people i think uh better data and uh just an idea of how your body is personally responding to certain foods will hopefully accelerate people's knowledge around what other practices beyond changing the food itself can help with their body's yeah. um, response to to glucose so yeah super super interesting definitely one to watch
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I really hope you enjoyed that. And remember, you can get the Circadian Diabetes Code in all good bookstores. It's a fascinating read. And if you're really interested in time-restricted feeding and all the benefits of that, as well as all the research, his book is a fantastic resource. And whilst I've still got you, do sign up to the newsletter, Eat, Listen, Read. You can find it on thedoctorskitchen.com and check out the app as well whilst you're there. I will see you here next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 